Thank you for joining the Zen Care Podcast. These recorded Dharma talks are given freely to our community in the heart of New York City, which we are honored to now share with you. New York Zen Center for Contemplative Care is dedicated to transforming the nature of care through contemplative practice by meeting illness, aging, and death with compassion and wisdom. Learn about us at zencare.org. So happy Mother's Day to those of you who are mothers and those of you who are celebrating Mother's Day today. Must be very strange for those of you who are used to uh, visiting mom on this day with uh, all this shelter in place. uh, So I guess you're doing it by Zoom. maybe sending flowers if, if you're they're living in places where they can get deliveries. In England, we had something called Mothering Sunday, which was not Mother's Day. Uh, Mothering Sunday began in the 16th century. And it was a day when people, it was the fourth, fourth Sunday in Lent, and people would go visit the mother church, the church or the cathedral in their area in England. And on that day, the domestic servants were given the day off to go visit the mother, in, the mother church, and they would take that time to go visit their family. So it was Mothering Sunday. It wasn't Mother's Day. Mother's Day, actually, of course, if you, is a, an American uh, holiday. It was invented by a lady by the name of Anna Jarvis in the 1900s. And she wanted to uh, dedicate a day for mothers in honor of her own mother, who was an activist, peace activist. And uh, in 1904, 1908, I can't remember the date now, looked this up earlier. um, Roosevelt, no, sorry, Wood, Woodrow Wilson officially designated uh, this day as Mother's Day. In England, the Mother's Day, which is now also called Mother's Day, uh, is in March, the fourth Sunday of Lent. And also, as same as here in the States, it's become this big uh, day of commercialization, uh, a big day for Hallmark cards and Godiva chocolates. So the whole kind of uh, original Mothering Day has lost. Uh, when I was a kid, we used to, I used to go get daffodils because it was in you know early spring. So daffodils for my mom, that was the, the tradition to bring a bunch of daffodils uh, to her on Mother's Day. Kashiti Garber uh, was an Indian bodhisattva and Kshitigaba became known in China as Dizang and in Japan as Jizo. So 
Kshitigabha is one of the four bodhisattvas, the four main bodhisattvas in the Mahayana tradition is Kshitigabha, Samantabhadra, Avalokiteshvara, and Manjushri. So it's what's interesting about Jesus or Kshitigabha is that Today we see Jizo generally as a, in the male form, as in our Zendo and our ceremonies for Jizo Bodhisattva. Usually, as I said, it's uh, seen in the male form, but it can take all different forms of animals, female form. Um, there's a story in the day of the Buddha, one of the Buddhas, that Kashitigarbha was also known as sacred girl, right? So, and the story goes that she was uh, born into the Brahmin sect and she was really heartbroken and um, dismayed that her mother was always slandering the three treasures. Her mother was like, didn't have uh, the dedication to Buddhist practice uh, and she was constantly, you know, effing and blinding over the three treasures. And Kshitigarbha, sacred girl, would go to the temple every day and pray and send, send merit to her mother uh, in order to um, release or forgive her, her of her transgressions. The story, as the story goes, one day the Buddha heard her praying in the temple and said that she, if she went home and repeated these certain mantras over and over and over again, it would help with the release of her mother and um, all the ill feelings towards her mother. So she went home, she was spent days, days, chanting, 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 and at some point, her consciousness was moved to the hell realms. The Buddha had moved her consciousness or had or her meditation and moved her consciousness to the hell realms. And in the hell realms, she asked about her mother. And the, the king of the hell realms said, well, your mother did so much good work here, so much repentance, that she has been moved now to the heavenly realms. So on hearing this, Kshitigarbha vowed to always, uh, vowed to become a bodhisattva to save all sentient beings. One of one of the bodhi, you know the bodhisattvas vowed to stay on the earth until all beings were saved. So this was Kshiti Gaba's way of saying thank you to the king of the hell realms for releasing her mother to the heavenly realms. And then Kshiti Gaba became, as I said, Dizang in China, and then Jizo in Japan. Yeah. So that's a little history of uh, our Jizo, where Jizo really originated. So if you think of it now, the, uh, the irony of us seeing Jizo is this, usually this male form, oftentimes holding children. Um, in, in, our, in the Japanese tradition, Jizo is considered the patron saint, if you like, of mothers, children, babies, and travelers. But um, as I said, seen usually in this male form, but uh, according to myth, she was originally, he was originally sacred girl. A couple of weeks ago, I was uh, making a hospice visit 
uh, on Zoom with a patient in Chicago. Um, she was a really amazing, this really amazing lady. Um, she was, she went to college in the 50s, graduated college, and in the 60s became, you know, got married and was a housewife with two kids. And she was expected to stay home, you know, the good wife, the good mother, stay home, make the cakes, take care of the kids in the house, and make sure there was a martini on the table when her husband got home in the evening. She did this for about eight years. And then she left her husband and her children and went off to uh, have a life of her own. So the 60s, she went to India, traveled around India, came back, was a hippie, became a hippie, the, the Vietnam movement. She was invited in the feminist, in, um, in the, uh, involved in the feminist movement. She was kind of a radical, well, definitely a radical, you know, she'd left her husband and two kids. And at some point she took up, and so we're having this wonderful, wonderful conversation, which is how I'm hearing all this, uh, her history, because, you know, one of my, one of my questions is usually after what do you feel most about death, tell me about your life. So she was telling me about her life in her hospice bed in the spare room of her daughter's home. And um, at some point in the 80s, she took up with a, a Spanish man, a, a tango dancer. She lived with him for about 20 years. And over time, she had tried to rebuild the bridges between herself and her two daughters. The one daughter wanted nothing more to do with her and the, one, the other daughter with whom she was now living uh, was prepared to uh, welcome or to let mother back into her life and to try to build bridges, try to build these bridges. Talking to this uh, lady now in her 80s was... Um, not only beautiful, it was fascinating. It was, uh, for me as, a, as an Englishman, not growing up in the United States, hearing her stories of, uh, and of course, you know, this, this is not unknown to me, but hearing her stories of uh, her involvement in, in the movement against Vietnam and being at Woodstock and being a feminist. And she, you could see that she was a total, total, you know, lived on her own terms, life on her own terms. And she was, I mean, she had, she was actually very beautiful, this 82 year old, you know, she had hair, gray hair down to her shoulders. Um, and you could see that she was, must've been pretty stunning in her, in her youth, in her younger days. And I asked her what, it, oh, and she was sorry. So she had, uh, she had, she was living with terminal cancer and one of the most difficult things about her being on hospice care now was the fact that she had to move from her home of 40 years and in with her sister, in, her, in with her daughter. And this is a woman who was, you know, fiercely independent her whole life and now was being cared for all her 
needs being taken care of by her daughter and her bodily needs being taken care of by her daughter. It's just finding this really, really difficult. Um, and this was something also that she felt that moving into her daughter's home with daughter's husband and their children, that she was making their life very difficult. She was putting a lot of stress on their life. And she felt really badly about this. At one point, I asked the daughter to come into the room after, uh, I'll call her the, the, the dying lady, Mary, after Mary and I had had a really long conversation, maybe 45 minutes, um, I asked if I could speak to the daughter. The daughter came into the room and you know, I asked her what her experience was now of taking care of mom at this point in her life. And you could see that there was something, there's some kind of reparation that had happened. You know, the mom, as difficult it was for, for her to be in this position being taken care of, the daughter came immediately to the bedside and took mom's hand. And she said, you know, she's driving me crazy. Her demands are unending and she's a total narcissist. And this is in front of mom, but it was in a, in a kind of lighthearted, very serious way. She said, you know, she's not the mother I would have asked for, but she's the one that I got. And we're both finding ways to respect each other's lives and the choices we made. I want to love her in every way I can, in every way I'm capable of before she dies. That was so beautiful. And it was so, on one hand, heartbreaking, and on the other, wow, what a healing. What a, you know, there's an, it's never too late. Here's mama, 82, being given the uh, opportunity not the opportunity she wanted. The last thing she wanted to do was give up her apartment to move into her mother's house, as her daughter's house with the daughter's husband and their children. But here she is. This is her life now as, it, as she approaches death. Um, something quite ironic about that, you know, um, leaving the kids, going off, having a very different life and now coming back to this one. Mother's Day. For some people, really special, really beautiful. For others, not so much. Depending on the mother we had, I guess. Um, and yet, there's always a time for healing, as we saw in this uh, little vignette I gave you from the work I do with, uh, some of the work that I do with, with folks on hospice and folks who are dying. Um, I've heard many mothers in my life, many mother figures in my life, uh, some male and some female, a little bit like Jizo, kind of, you know, uh, fluid, should we say, sometimes mother, sometimes male, sometimes female. Um, for me, gender fluid. Um, three of them, very important. Uh, my, my first mother, my mother, Sylvia Irene Day, who is my biological mother, John, uh, the Duchess, my 
gay cross-dressing sponsor for 22 years and teacher. And then there is my Dharma mother, wherever she is on the screen right now, Dorothy Diane Friedman. Three women in my life who, three male, female figures in my life who are, have totally shaped who I am for the most part today. Um, my endless gratitude to the three of them. Some of the teachings are not so easy to take. Some of the teachings so profound, they made a mark on my life forever. And uh, so to the three of them, happy Mother's Day. Two of them no longer here. And one of them very much here. Those of you who know Diane. So that's my Mother's Day story. Um, so to Mary in Chicago in a hospice bed, may the uh, reparations, may the uh, love between you and at least your one daughter continue to grow. And uh, may you both continue to find ways to love each other as you approach these final weeks of mom's life. To Sylvia, Irene Day, wherever you are, mom. I hope you just kick up, kicking up as much fuss as you always did when you were here. And to John, my gay cross-dressing sponsor, teacher, mentor, wherever you are, I hope you're singing opera, lifting your legs up and dancing. And to Dorothy, Diane Friedman, wherever you are right now, out there in Wayne Scott, maybe you're looking out at the garden. So I'm going to finish with a poem by Tony Hoagland. It's not the first time I've read this poem, and it probably won't be the last. Uh, this is really a poem to uh, Sylvia Irene Day, my biological mom. I think Tony Hoagland must have met uh, must have met her at some point in a bar somewhere, someday. It's called Mistaken Identity. I thought I saw my mother in the lesbian bar with a salt gray crew cut, a nose stud, and a tattoo of, of a parrot on her arm. She was sitting at a corner table, leaning forward to ignite on someone's match, one of those low tar things she used to smoke. And she looked happy again to be alive after her long marriage to other people's needs a 20-year stint as Sisyphus struggling to push a blue Ford station wagon full of screaming kids up a mountainside of groceries. My friend Deborah had brought me there to educate me on the issues of my own unnecessariness. And I stood against the wall trying to look simultaneously nonviolent and nonchalant watching the couples slow dance in the dark female in the female dark but feeling speechless, really at the first horse to meet the first horseless carriage on a cobbled street. That's when I noticed mom, whispering into the delicate seashell ear of a brunette, running her fingertip along the shoreline of a tank top, as if death had taught her finally not to question what she wanted and not to hesitate. 
in reaching out and taking it. I want to figure out everything right now before I die, but I admit that in the dark cavern of the bar, it took me one, maybe two minutes to find my footing and aim my antiquated glance over the shoulder of that woman pretending not to be my mother as if I were looking at somewhere else, at someone else. Tony Hoagland, Sylvia Irene Day, John the Duchess Hawkins, Dorothy Diane Friedman, and to all you mothers out there, happy mothers.